Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Anthropology, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Reagan Gillum, a host on the channel, and today I'm talking to Dr. Vanya Pena Lopez, who is the author of the book, The Presidential Elections of Trump and Bolsonaro, Whiteness in the Nation, published by Roman and Littlefield Press. Dr. Pena Lopez, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dr. Gillum. Um, yeah, the, the book is published by Lexington Books, which is a division of Roman and Littlefield. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for your invitation to talk about my latest book. Great. Thank you so much for that uh, for that correction. And I'm delighted to have you on the, the show, and I'm excited to talk about your book. And the, to begin the first question, um, you've previously written books that examine affirmative action and quota policies in Brazil, but this book compares the election of Bolsonaro, who is the president of Brazil, and you compare him to Donald Trump, who was the president of the United States. Can you tell us a little, about, a little bit about yourself and how you came to write this book? Sure. Since I was five years old, I would say, what would what do you want to be when you grow up? And I would always say, a scientist, an English teacher, and a writer. Uh, but I thought that I would be a natural scientist. Then at age 14, I saw a fantastic uh, TV show in Brazil on Sundays. And in that particular Sunday, they had a segment on race relations in Brazil, and they had Gilberto Freire and Darcy Ribeiro. Gilberto Freire happens to be the articulator of the racial democracy ideology in Brazil, and he was, you know, by then a you know, senior citizen. He was sitting there in his farm in, in white suit, surrounded by young black women, all in, in white garb. And uh, he said that in 50 years, Brazil would be a country of mulattoes. And they also interviewed Darcy Ribeiro, who um, was an anthropologist and uh, who also 
talked about race. And, and that fascinated me because I didn't know that that there was such a field of studies. So I said, well, then I want to be a social scientist. I want to be an anthropologist. And um, so ever since I've been uh, studying some aspect of race relations, I, you know, throughout college, I uh, graduated with a, with a bachelor's of social sciences from the University, uh, Federal University of Rio, and with a concentration in anthropology. And uh, I... Um, I have been in the United States for decades. I did my graduate work here at NYU, and uh, I have continued to study race relations. So um, over the years, I've uh, specialized in uh, comparing Brazil with the United States in terms of race. And uh, in my book, Confronting Affirmative, Affirmative Action in Brazil, I uh, wrote an introduction in which I, I defined race as a mirror for both countries. That the United States looks at Brazil in terms of race, uh, and Brazil looks at the United States in terms of race. That's how they compare themselves to each other and also see themselves, think of themselves. So after having studied um, Afro-Brazilians, African-Americans, um, for most of my career, it dawned on me after confronting affirmative action in Brazil that I wanted to, um, that it made sense to study whiteness because the reason uh, we look so much at non-whites is because we take whiteness for granted. But the reason there are problems in race relations is that these the, the whiteness is the, the, uh, the the race, the ethnicity, the, the categorization of, of those with the most power. So we needed to, to look at it um, as, uh, you know, not as normal or normative, but something that is also socially constructed. And uh, I didn't know quite what I was going to write about. But then in October of 2018, I was in line to vote in New York to vote for uh, president in Brazil, and um, I saw these women in line with me uh, wearing a T-shirt that said, make Brazil great again, right underneath a picture of Bolsonaro. And they were chanting 17, 17, which was his uh, number, right, that we went to vote. And that struck me as so obvious a comparison because evidently, you know, make Brazil great again is a copy of make America great again. So I got back home and uh, started, I started jotting down my ideas because the thing is I, I live in the United States. I work in the United States, but I also spend a lot of time in Brazil. So not only am I um, a native of that country, but also live there. So I, I feel the pulse of society. And I was uh, there for Bolsonaro's in, inauguration, and I was here for Trump's inauguration. So uh, I would say that I've come to to write about this topic um, based on my, you know, my, my academic career, my research agenda, but also my life experience as a Black woman from Brazil who lives in the United States. 
Thank you so much for that. That is fascinating, especially that image from Brazil of Gilberto Freire and Darcy Ribeiro, and then the image that you shared with us about going to vote in Brazil as well, um, as as part of what what led you to this project and your and your line of research. And so, in the book, um, you argue, and I'm, I'm quoting you that you say, quote, the success of each candidate, Trump and Bolsonaro, reflects the racially hierarchical structure of their societies. And so I wondered if you could just talk about the argument of the book and how you came to this idea. Uh, Yes, I think that's a, a, a continuation of my first answer. And that is, um, you know, studying race for so many years and teaching about race uh, and, uh, you know, how we we see that in Brazil, people prefer to talk about class inequality than racial inequality. It's like, no, this is, a, if it's a racial democracy here, there's no racism, but Brazilians would agree that the country is very uh, economically hierarchical, socially hierarchical. In the, in the United States, is the opposite. Um, Americans are more comfortable talking about race relations, you know, because they're aware that, uh, you know, it used to be the law that races should be separate and uh, and all of that. And they have difficulty talking about class differences. Now everybody's middle class. Well, everybody's not middle class. And uh, in the course of looking at the histories of both countries from their beginning. I, from from when the United States uh, declared independence from from England, when Brazil was first colonized uh, by the Portuguese, uh, you know, we see that that in both places, uh, even when race was not defined as such, there was already uh, that idea that some people belonged more than others, and uh, and the major criteria criterion of belonging was being white or not, and to a a very large extent, being a white male or not. So um, my argument came also from the fact that I would hear in both countries people's um, surprise at the elections. Like here in New York, the, the day after Trump was elected, people are like, I don't believe this. You know, journalists said, oh, we got it wrong. Social scientists said, we got it wrong. We didn't think he would win. And in Brazil also, it's like, he won. Wow. Uh, You know, they were surprising. And uh, so my argument is, well, their elections are not really surprising because they're both products of these societies that have, throughout their histories, grappled with um, racial hierarchy, you know, who who is considered a member of that nation, who belongs, who does not, and all the struggle that those who are excluded um, have had to end that. And uh, so from time to time, and especially in the United States, after 50 years of affirmative action gains, in Brazil, after over 10 years of, of affirmative action gains of minority rights being more taken uh, into account and women's rights in both places, I think that the election of, elections of both men reflected this undercurrent of this hierarchy that places white men on top. 
Mm-hmm. That is fascinating. And so this might be a continuation of what um, of what you just said, but in the book, you go through a very detailed history that emphasizes the racial dynamics in both countries, and you argue about how whiteness is associated with citizenship in Brazil and the U.S., And but there are these mechanisms that obscure that. Um, that equation of whiteness with citizenship. And so in Brazil, the idea that Brazil is racially mixed and free from racism, as you just said, obscures this racial hierarchy. And in the U.S., the idea that it's a democracy and the land of the free obscures this hierarchy. And so I wondered if you could, um, if you wanted to expand on that and and talk about how you see whiteness as operating um, as foundational to citizenship. Sure. I think in both cases, um, there is the centrality of slavery. The fact that the United States and Brazil are the two largest countries in the American continent and that slavery was so central for uh, the economic development of, of both nations. And in the case of Brazil, slavery lasted you know, for a much longer time, right? It's the last country in the Americas to abolish slavery. So... Uh, Slavery already defines who is a citizen, who is not. So in both countries, those uh, who were enslaved or who descended from from those who had been enslaved, what I call those who carry the mark of Africa on their bodies, um, have had to prove that they belong. Um, But also... um, in both countries, the indigenous population was not included in uh, who was a citizen. And in both countries, the indigenous population was racialized as not white. So they're not black, but they're not white, and therefore they were also not uh, considered citizens. Um, in the United States, naturalization was denied to non-whites until the early 20th century. So again, uh, in order for people to become um, U.S. citizens, naturalized U.S. citizens, they had to prove that they were white, which created uh, absurd situations, such as the case of a Japanese man uh, who who, uh, petitioned in court to be considered white because he had uh, a white disposition you know, wide uh, characteristics in in his behavior and way of thinking. Um, And in Brazil, it was, uh, you know, the fear of racial inferiority. Brazil was was used as a model of what happens when racial miscegenation is is allowed. This country is bound to to failure. And uh, so there was a preoccupation in widening the country I should also say that the indigenous movement was strong, both in the United States and in Brazil. And so this whole discourse of uh, white is the superior race is very strong in both uh, societies. And I should also mention voting rights, right? Obviously, in the United States, uh, uh, African-Americans only gained the right to vote in the entire uh, territory. Uh, in 1965, in Brazil, uh, a, there were a number of exclusions of, of voting based on uh, on race, but also on class, I should say. And um, so all of those, I think, um, make the case for how central whiteness is, has been 
in both countries, the way they, they organize themselves. Absolutely. Um, and then in the book, you contribute um, two chapters each to talk about the campaigns and elections of Bolsonaro and Trump. And you emphasize, one thing you emphasize is their similarities as unconventional candidates. And so I wondered if you could begin by, t- by comparing them and telling us um, how they were both unconventional candidates. Uh, yeah, I think that's, that's very interesting, right? Because again, that was something that I would hear about Trump in the United States and about Bolsonaro in Brazil. It's like, no, Trump is different. Uh, Bolsonaro is different. And um, so they, I think they, they both explored this image of outsiders. Right? In the case of Trump, uh, the main, uh, the main uh, point of his purportedly being an outsider was that he was not a career politician. No, he's not a politician. He's a businessman. And so um, he's getting into this with his expertise as a businessman rather than all the, you know, what politicians usually do, which is mouth off and and not um, uh, make good on their promises. And uh, the in, in the case of Bolsonaro, um, that was very interesting because before he um, he was a presidential candidate, he had been uh, a congressperson for 28 years. And yet um, he was not seen as a traditional politician because people saw him and then and he himself projected himself as first and foremost uh, a military person. Um, and also... So, so then four people, like, no, see, he's not like the other politicians. He's different. Uh, I think that could also, um, you know, it could also uh, matter the fact that he was, Bolsonaro, was considered a member of the Baixo Clero, the low clergy, uh, which would mean people who were uh, politicians or members of Congress and Senate, but who were not... Um, who are not as influential. And, uh, and another, I would say, characteristic in, in terms of Bolsonaro is that he changed, he has changed political parties a number of times. So that, you know, that, that is unusual for a politician in, in Brazil, even though Brazil has, you know, dozens of political parties. And, and finally, I, I would say that, um, they both uh, explore like this as outsiders. So Trump came in as with the, the the proposal to change the economy, right? To make America great again, especially before China. And um, Bolsonaro focused on getting rid of corruption, and he kept saying we have to to change all of that. And then people say, but change what? Well, uh, the experts will will tell me what to change. I know that it has to be changed. And and a lot of Brazilians saw that as very honest and you know also a sign that he was unconventional because I know he's he's just saying that we need to change it, but he is um open to um experts to direct him in you know, like the uh, in terms of change. But corruption is going to take care of. Mm-hmm. 
And so this question might pick up on some of the threads that you've um, that you've already discussed in some of your previous answers. But both Bolsonaro and Trump both presented themselves also as saviors of the nation. And as you know, Trump wanted to, quote, make America great again. And then Bolsonaro claimed that he would save Brazil, as you just explained, from corruption. And he had this way of prosperity. And I was wondering how their slogans um, are similar, but also how they relate might relate to white resentment among people um, who felt that both countries were changing in ways that they may have not been supportive of. Right. Um, yeah. So as I said before, um, Trump was a model for for um, Bolsonaro, right? And the slogans and, you know, being touted as, as unconventional, as I've been saying. Uh, and I also mentioned that uh, in the United States, people are more comfortable discussing race. So, uh, so Trump found um, a niche in which to, to talk about, in a way, to attack affirmative action. Right? Affirmative action is over. It didn't start with him. Um, you know, for decades, people have said, we don't need affirmative action in the United States anymore. The field is level, right? Um, but so when he comes in and it's like to make America great is to uh, to talk about Americans as Americans without um, racial distinctions, right? So if we're not going to talk about racial distinctions, then people, people can make it regardless of their race because... Um, the policies have worked, and this country is the land of opportunity. Uh, in Brazil, as I said before, uh, people are more comfortable discussing class. So uh, there, there was this, there were these attacks on the formerly poor. Uh, you know, it's like, well, this, all these other governments. Look at this; these everybody has cars now. And that is also something that I've, you know, I've heard from people, you know, while I was there. Um, look at the way the airport is now. The poor now travel by, by plane. They're everywhere. What is the point of my traveling if I'm going to find all these poor people uh, at the airport? And, uh, and also, people complained about the, the gains that uh, domestic workers had uh, from the previous governments. Like, oh, now I have to... You know, she has to be a regular worker when, you know, it was notorious in Brazil um, how domestic workers were really an extension of, of um, house slaves. You know, they they were um, they had to sleep in the in their job very often. Um, they could be raped and uh, they were considered many of them were considered a member of the family. But of course, they were not included in the. Uh, inheritance, um, and uh, people might go to a, um, a poor area, pick up a little girl, and bring them home. Oh, we're going to raise them, criala. Uh, but then the girl would do all the domestic work. So the word, one word for for domestic worker in Brazil is criada, which comes from that, which has been created. So she was raised in order to to do the the housework. And, uh, you know, labor laws have changed in Brazil so that people, people still do that, but now they have, you know, they are, um, they have to pay somehow, right, judicially. 
So I think that um, this resentment that, that was felt in both countries, look at all these opportunities. If, if there are all these opportunities for these people now, that means that I have fewer opportunities, right? Because there are only so many. So I'm losing ground here. I meaning, you know, like the source of this uh, white resentment that was felt in both countries. Mm-hmm. And so I was, um, I was struck by the increasing popularity during the election campaign of Bolsonaro. I didn't, I follow, you know, Brazilian politics and I don't think I quite realized what you, what you bring up in the book that after being stabbed, um, he went into seclusion to heal and this is what helped catapult Bolsonaro to visibility. Um, I thought that was very interesting. And I wondered if you could just talk about this a little bit, how, how him being stabbed on the election campaign and then his seclusion, how did this help his election? Sure. Um, well, there's something very interesting about um, um, camp- political campaigns in Brazil about uh, broadcast time. Uh, and every every time there are a number of presidential candidates because as i said before there are a number of political parties in brazil so when they go and have a, pre- uh, a televised debate each candidate will have um different allotted times they all their allotted times will have to do with the strength of representation of their parties so in the case of bolsonaro his party at the time, Partido Social Liberal, did not have, excuse me, enough political representation, so that um, uh, he had very a very short time, like less than ten seconds. Obviously, that's very that's not enough, right, for a debate. Uh, before the the uh, the stabbing, people were already referring to him as a myth, right? They would say, mito, mito. And, um, and after the, the, the stabbing, he also came to be seen as a martyr, right? But look at him trying to change the country and, um, you know, he risked his life. I'm interpreting this as, you know, martyrdom. So he, as you said, he has to, you know, he goes to the hospital to convalesce. He was not participating in um, the debates, but he was getting a lot of press time, both in the traditional uh, news media and in social media, with the stabbing. Right. So, so this is a this is a news piece about how well he's doing at the hospital now. Uh, the topic is constantly discussed on Twitter, on you know, and so he ended up getting a lot of uh, of media attention. And then after that, he, he really, um, soared. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. And so one thing I also found interesting about Brazil is that voting is almost mandatory with some ways to abstain. 
And so you mentioned in the book that 29% of the electorate actually voted for, for Bolsonaro. And maybe that was in the second round of elections, because many people nullified their votes. So I wondered if you could talk about voting in Brazil and then what people saw in Bolsonaro to to vote for him. Uh, yes. Uh, voting in Brazil is a right and a duty. So that failure to vote has consequences. For example, if, if a person uh, fails to vote in three consecutive elections, he or she may... Uh, may lose certain rights. For example, it may lead to the cancellation of their voting registration, so they can't vote at all. Uh, if they could also be uh, forbidden from acquiring real estate, from uh, getting a civil civil service job, from getting a passport, because all of these, these uh, activities require showing ID card, uh, and a passport and, uh, and a voting registration card. So at the same time, one can justify not voting as long as one does that within two months of uh, the election. And also pay uh, if the person pays a fine. And the fine uh, in 2018 was the equivalent of uh, a little over a dollar. So it's not, we're not talking about, you know, a lot of money, obviously. So what ended up happening in the second round of elections was that those who, who were dissatisfied with uh, the Workers' Party, can't, uh, with the Workers' Party, but who were also uh, not in favor of, of Bolsonaro, refused to go vote. You know, it's like, no, I'll stay home. Uh, and so um, the observer, observers have, um, concluded that those people ended up um, helping elect Bolsonaro because they didn't, you know, exercise their right to vote. You know, so to respond to your other question, what people saw in Bolsonaro to vote for him, as I said before, his anti-corruption campaign was very appealing to people because at the same time, uh, you know, this um, um, investigation into corruption and the former uh, government was going on, and so they uh, Bolsonaro's campaign was able to capitalize on that and you know paint the the opposition as the epitome of corruption. Never has there been so much corruption in Brazil, and I will clean the country of that. The other uh, appeal was his anti-crime uh, uh, push and um, his concern for public safety and. Uh, you know, that is something that appealed to uh, a large number of people because uh, Brazil is uh, a country where there is a lot of uh, street crime. There's a lot of, um, you know, violence. And uh, and for the most more conservative uh, part of the electorate, um, Criminals have too many rights, and this whole thing of like human rights. This is getting to a point where, where uh, uh, straight and narrow citizens end up having no rights. You see, mm-hmm. 
And so you in the book, you go through these various similarities between the two candidates. And then I, I assumed um, with the similarities that you point out between Trump and Bolsonaro, maybe we shouldn't be surprised then that they took similar approaches to the coronavirus pandemic, um, which is still going on. Um, by initially the, the two candidates kind of initially downplayed it and they flouted public health measures. And so you know, the pandemic has clearly been devastating for both countries with the loss of lives and the social and economic disruption that is that has come about. And so I wondered if you wanted to talk about the pandemic also in relation to the presidents, their similarities and the strategies that they employed. Absolutely. And then again, this comes from, you know, as you said, the behavior of each uh, president. So something that we actually observed, but also from my experience of living in both countries. And uh, so I had to talk about the pandemic. This is an afterword in my book. I wrote this book during the pandemic. Most of, uh, mostly I, I was in Brazil. I was on uh, study leave to write this book, and then um, the pandemic ensued. And uh, again, Trump was clearly a model for Bolsonaro when the um, you know in the way that they that he dealt with with the pandemic, as he said. Um, both of them, I think, if we compare the two of them, I think there were uh, two major points. That one, of course, the dismissal of the pandemic. It's like, this is no big deal. And Bolsonaro became uh, famous for having uttered, isso é só uma gripezinha. That's just a little cold or a little flu that'll pass. And uh, the other point is that um, this denial of science in both cases. It's like, no, we, uh, the, the, World Health Organization doesn't know what it's talking about. Um, we do not need um, these measures. You know, this medication works. This medication for worms uh, works. This, you know, you do this or you you use bleach or and and that that was um, the whole thing was very uh, shocking and unusual, right? Because uh, evidently we weren't around and in uh, 1918, 1920, when the the major pandemic uh, uh, had taken place, right? So for, uh, for us, all of us, it was, you know, it has been uh, very trying times. But the other thing that, that I should say is that like, Brazil is uh, internationally known for all the, um, all its efforts toward, um, um, developing vaccines and uh, medical treatments, you know, for for over a century now, and so that was another thing that was really shocking, you know, like to have the the major authorities denying that that we were confronted with, um, uh, you know, a completely destructive virus, and to and to direct. Uh, the whole thing to politics. So this is just it's just an opportunity to to mess with with government. And uh, it's it's also interesting that at the very beginning, uh, when they announced that uh, we would go into lockdown in Rio in in March, early March of 
2020, uh, I saw somebody I know on the street just, you know, came across her and she said, this virus is very democratic. I said, oh, really? How so? Oh, because it doesn't choose anybody. Anybody can get it. It doesn't matter whether the person is poor or wealthy, whether the person is black or white, everybody can be affected the same way. But that's not what we saw in either country. That's the other thing. Both countries, because of lack of um, uh, access to healthcare uh, or faulty healthcare uh, or living in cramped quarters, the people who were most affected, relatively speaking, by the pandemic ended up being uh, the poor and minorities. So that's another um, point in common between the two countries. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of sad similarities between um, between the pandemic in both countries. And, and so we know how Trump's presidency ended um, with, you know, with the loss of the election to Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. And while I'm sure you, you know, you don't know the future um, of how Bolsonaro's uh, presidency will, will go, I wondered if you had any sense of how popular Bolsonaro is now or um, any sense of, of, uh, of how, how people are feeling about him as, as the president um, in this moment as Brazil goes into its next election in 2022. Sure. Well, as of December of last year, 2021, 57% of um, those polled um, thought that Lula's governments had been better than Bolsonaro's. Now, Lula, of course, is a contender, right? Um, Bolsonaro is also in the in the race. And then there are others. Um, so 50, 57% thought that Lula's government were uh, better than Bolsonaro's, while 27% of those polled thought that Bolsonaro's government had been better than Lula's. So Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva. So um, uh, Bolsonaro is falling behind in that uh, sense. But, but then as of January 9th of this year, uh, another poll found um, that 45% of intended to vote for, intends to vote for Lula, um, as opposed to 23% to Bolsonaro. And then there are other uh, candidates, like Ciro Gomes with 5%, Sergio Moro, who was the main uh, uh, investigator of the, the anti-corruption um, investigation, Lava Jato, uh, gets 9%. Doria, who's the, the current governor of Sao Paulo, gets 3% of the electorate and uh, 4% are un were undecided, 8% uh, would vote for none of them. So uh, at this point, he, uh, Bolsonaro is behind in the race. But, you know, as you said, we don't know what the future holds, right? We, we social scientists are good uh, uh, at explaining the here and now, not as, not as good as, at making predictions, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, but it's just interesting to hear, um, you know, go moving along as we, as Brazil goes into its election season, you know, where, where are we now? And then getting and thinking about what happened in the United States. Um, we'll, we'll and I, and, yeah. I was going to add that, that this is, 
this is a very emblematic year because in addition to the presidential elections, it's also the, the 100th anniversary of the, the Modern Art Week and um, the 200th anniversary of Brazil's independence from Portugal. So it's like everything is happening in 2022. So do you have any upcoming events around the book, any book launches or publicity that we should look out for? Yes. Um, on February 11th, I um, launched the book online. Uh, it was an event organized by Columbia Center uh, up in Rio. So it's a, uh, one of the international centers of Columbia University and co-sponsored by the uh, Columbia University Seminar on Brazil, of which I'm co-chair. And um, hopefully there will be um, other events where where I can promote my work. But that was really great because um, the organizer of the event was in Rio. I was uh, here in New York. The commentator was in California. And... um, and there were people listening from different parts of the world. So that was great. Great. So that sounds like a very transnational event. And I hope that listeners will look for a recording of that launch if they want to hear more information about the book as well. Thank you. So now that this book is out, um, are you working on any new projects or thinking about any upcoming initiatives? Um, Can you tell us about anything you're working on now or have on the horizon? Well, I I want to see this book published in Portuguese. And, um, you know, evidently, most Brazilians don't read English. And uh, so that that is something that I would like to 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 do. And um, and then for future research out of this, this uh, book, I've been thinking now about hegemonic masculinity and um, and also violent masculinity and um, which would take me back to to the topic of my dissertation many moons ago uh, my PhD dissertation was on um, masculinity but it was the um, participation of African-American fathers of of young children of minor children in housework and childcare, and, and you know, I did life histories, and so how they they view their their status in society, how they were often accused of not being capable of of raising families, forging families, and um, and now you know, I'm 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 looking again at, at masculinity because, of course, having studied black masculinity. That's another topic that, um, you know, lends itself to looking at white masculinity uh, specifically, right? Because a lot of the ways that black masculinity has been defined has been it's like, oh, uh, um, like an inferior version of white masculinity. And so, but this is all very new. Mm-hmm. Well, great. And it sounds like really important work. And I'm Wishing you good luck on getting the book published in Portuguese. I think that would be thank you. Yeah, I think that would be wonderful for um, Brazilians to be able to then engage in the work um, by reading it in, in Portuguese. So, 
Thank you so much. I've been speaking with Dr. Vanya Peña Lopez, the author of the book, The Presidential Elections of Trump and Bolsonaro, Whiteness and the Nation, published by Lexington Books of Roman and Littlefield Press. Thank you so much for writing this book and thank you for sharing it with us on the podcast. Thank you again, Dr. Gillum, for the opportunity to speak about my work and uh, to ask me to have asked me such um, incisive questions.